the six o'clock news. It <laughs> looks funny, doesn't it? Hello, hello, hello. Welcome along to the water cooler number 39. Really? Oh, 39. That's almost a year's worth, but not quite. Uh, I'm Donna Brookbanks. Thank you for coming. <laughs> No, I'm just kidding. That's gross. Uh, <laughs> hey, people. Uh, I'm an um, actor, comedian, writer, <clears throat> cat lady. I mean, it goes <laughs> on, really, doesn't it? Uh, and I'm very happy to be here hosting the water cooler. Thank you very much for having me. Good night. Just kidding. <laughs> we've already just started. Um, tonight, we've got some wonderful guests. I feel like I'm hosting a talk show. This is so much fun. <laughs> You wait until the games start. Just kidding, there's no games. Um, the theme tonight is metamorphosis. 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 I practiced that earlier and I still can't say it. Um, which I'm just going to read out because you wrote it so well, Todd, that I am not going to make up what it's really about. Um, a change in seasons, a new perspective, an upheaval, a revolution, an unfamiliar chapter. Ahi Karunaharan. Zach Sokai and Jackie Drew are ready to hit you with radical stories of their own metamorphosis. This month's water cooler offers a fresh look at what it means to have your life move through a new season or simply to reflect on a season that's passed. This month's host is the ever hilarious Donna Oh, sorry. <laughs> Didn't need to read that. <laughs> uh, great, thank you for coming. Uh, we'll get on to these guys soon, but um, I thought I'd just. Uh, who's having a lovely snack? What you got there? <laughs> well, that's rude. <laughs> You're going to bring snacks? Bring enough for everyone. <laughs> Just kidding. Um, yeah, uh, I thought I'd start with uh, quite a little bit of general chat about changing, about metamorphosis. And uh, I'm going to point out the elephant in the room. Obviously, um, I've hurt my foot. Thanks for noticing, guys. Your sympathy is... Oh god, there goes my side. <laughs> and for the people playing at home, because uh, we're recording, um, aren't we? Uh, I've got a bandage on my foot. There's a lot of blood uh, having trouble keeping it, even here in the room. Um, just put that image in your head. Um, but I found a mole on my foot, right? That had changed. Oh, Sneaky <laughs> little reference to the theme there. Mm -hmm. And uh, I had to get it cut out. And um, joys of getting older, I guess. Uh, the doctor was like, oh, that's got to come right out of here, out of your foot. And I was like, well, do you have to? Because <laughs> I'm not good with that sort of stuff. Um, and so we cut it out. And it's really not healing that well. So, um, yeah. <laughs> Great story to start with. Um, <laughs> the good news is I've started low and we're going to build up. <laughs> One of the things your body does when you start changing. Puberty, am I right? <laughs> uh, but I have, I just turned 34 on Sunday. Oh, thank you so much. I know, I know, 34. And um, I've recently found a couple of grey hairs in my fringe, which I'm quite worried about because I feel like maybe my fringe is only going to go silver and then I'll be like, is there a superhero that's like that? It just has one bit of silver in her hair. Well, it's going to be me. 
Um, but you know, you, you start doing weird things. Like I started gardening. <laughs> but what is that? What is that? I was always like, ooh, dirt and wounds and stuff. And now I'm like, give me the garden. Put a plant. Yeah. <laughs> um, I segue very uh, beautifully into um, I bought a swan plant recently. You'll catch on soon. <laughs> oh my gosh, I love my swan plant so much, guys. I love it. It's so cool. Like, when the first monarch caterpillars appeared on that, I was like, mates, I'm killing life right now. Like, no, not killing them, no, it wasn't. They were like, I'm here. And I was like, ah! Um, I was so stoked. I was like, I made them. I didn't make them, but I felt like I contributed to their life in a small way um, by giving them a home. And this little swan line that I had worn, it was tiny, and now it's like too big, if anything. And uh, watching those little monarchs turn from caterpillars, like little tiny, tiny caterpillars, into eating like all the food, and then becoming like these massive, plump, juicy, yummy looking caterpillars. And then, they, they curl, I watched one, I curled up into like a little you, and then it, it turned into a chrysalis. How the fuck does that happen? Like that's amazing. <laughs> it's amazing. And then it gets like a little shell around it, and then I watched it for ages. I was like, come on, come on. And then it goes from like the most amazing green. I know you guys probably know this. It goes from the most incredible green with like gold on it. That's probably worth a lot of money. <laughs> and then it goes brown. And then it becomes a butterfly. <laughs> what kind of crazy shit is that? Man, I watched that song time all summer and I haven't talked for a while. So. <laughs> <laughs> it's so cool. It's so cool. I love it. So yeah, um, I think that's amazing. And then they're like alive for a day, right? Monarchs are like alive for a day, which is sad, and I try not to think about that. Especially because I found a monarch butterfly in my garden, and it had one of its wings was broken, and I'm pretty sure it was my cat, but we don't talk about that. And I was like, fuck, oh, man, that sucks, because this was like your one day on the planet. And you were like, I'm a loss, for fuck's sake. that's the worst, eh? Anyway. Uh, what else have I got? Oh yeah. Oh, I thought I'd tell you this, guys. Because I thought I'd tell you this, guys, because um, the word metamorphosis is is so cool, okay? If you break it up right, meta is change, morph is shape, and then osis is state. So it's like changing your state, shape. <laughs> Pretty cool, eh? Which made me think about Harry Potter. <laughs> because me and my flatmate are watching Harry Potter at the moment. We started at the beginning, and then we're on. We just watched um, *Goblet of Fire*, which is the best one I reckon, where they do the maze and stuff, right? Um, but they have animaguses. Is that how you say? Animaguses. Animagus. Thank you. Which the plural is animagi. <laughs> I learned that today. How cool is it? If you don't know, right? You know a lot about it, right? Yeah. Fair enough. <laughs> So some wizards and witches can turn into animals. <laughs> like Professor McGonagall can turn into a cat, which is like my dream, right? I'd love to turn into a cat. Hard day? Oh. <laughs> you know. My cat slept on the end of my bed all night last night and didn't move once. I'm like, that is a dream night's sleep, <laughs> right? Um, which I thought was pretty cool that you could just change into a cat whenever you wanted. So it's cool if you're a superhero, 
Because you have to go into a telephone booth and then take off all your clothes and then put on some more clothes and then you're a superhero, you know, it's not quite the same. Friends, why would you change the telephone box with windows? <laughs> Choose something more private, please. Oh, it's gone well. Oh, here's something I wanted to try. Because me and my friend Josh, who's sitting there in the audience, we were having this discussion about whether you'd rather, if you could choose, whether you could have flight, you could fly, or you could turn invisible, right? And we were like, obviously you'd fly. But I just want to do a show of hands. If you were going to choose flight, can you raise your hand? Oh, this is interesting. Okay, invisible? This is even half. Half. It's interesting, because we were like, oh my god, flying would be so cool. Invisible, you're just creepy. <laughs> you know what I mean? Anyway, that's cool. That's interesting, eh? Um, so anyway, I've recently become, since turning like 34, right, um, I've kind of become interested in um, kind of changing myself for the better, I think. I'm trying to do this thing where I'm overhauling. What's up, guys? What's up? What are you talking about? <laughs> oh, yeah, see, I knew I should have done that. Terrible idea. <laughs> I know, I know. We go for ages. You guys should not play Would You Rather. <laughs> Get you through a whole car trip. Um, but yeah, but I'm trying to like, change myself into a better person, right? I think everyone goes through the stage at some point in their life they try and change themselves into a better person. Like, you know, I hate this about myself. I wish I didn't do that or whatever. Like, I drink too much. I drink way too much. But I'm like, I'm like, oh, I shouldn't do that anymore. I'm getting too old. But I realise, right, instead of being like, oh, you can't just, like, stop it and change your life, you've got to go a little bit at a time, right? You've got to go a little bit. So this is my second beer. Thank you very much. Um, <laughs> I'm doing the best I can, guys, under the circumstances. Um, but, hey, that's uh, a kind of a broad sweep of the... Uh, Topic, metamorphosis. <laughs> and uh, we're going to get going on our, um, our first speaker. Um, Ahi, yeah. would you like to come and join me? Sure thing. At the uh, weather table. <laughs> it's not, guys. Um, <laughs> hi, Ahi Karunahara. Am I saying that correctly? Yeah, that's right. Um, do you wanna, what, what would you say is the thing that you do? Like, if you, what do you put on your customs form? When you're coming oh, into the country. Well, I, 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 had this, I had this memory. It was just after drama school and, um, and I was like looking at labels and I wanted to call myself a maker because I was like, I'm a writer, director, musician. So I wrote maker. And the guy, the customer looked at me, it, it must be the most wankiest thing I've written. He was like, maker of what? I was like, maker of art. <laughs> and um, he it. looked at me and he was like, okay, mate. Yeah, sweet. <laughs> Go through. Um, but yeah, like... Every time I go through, I, I put something else different because I'm always working on something else. I'm like, I'm a stage manager this time, or I'm just going to be, you know, uh, a painter, I've been a labourer. Uh, yeah, numerous things. A jack of all trades. Jack of all trades. That's awesome. And what are you working on at the moment? Uh, well, I work in basement. Um, uh, and when I'm not doing that, I work as a freelance director cool. and as a writer as well. And sometimes I write music as well. You write music? Yeah. She. Awesome. What kind of music? Um, it ranges from like hardcore Indian to like classical and like really cheesy pop songs. Amazing. Yeah. Can you talk me through hardcore Indian, please? <laughs> <laughs> hardcore Indian. So um, 
when I moved to New Zealand, like it was in 1990, um, there was like a lack of Indian musicians, so we kind of formed this like crazy Bollywood cover band, and um, we were the only ones around, so uh, we got hired to play everyone's weddings, funerals, and everything. And um, we got paid really well, so it was really amazing. And um, so basically, we just take all these songs, but what we like to do is like just funk it up and change it up. So we arrange it, so we like to do like reggae styles of like old school Bollywood classics, or like you know funk things up. Um, so half was like crazy tabla beats. Um, and also with um, Indian singers, the higher you sing, in terms of like your key range, if, you, if you're shrieking, that's the sign of a really good singer. So singers are always going, put me up at an, like, you know, at an A or a B, and you're like, lady, it's really painful to listen to. But still, <laughs> they go for it. So um, hardcore Indian music is just hardcore. It's just like pleasurable for us as musicians, maybe not for the audience. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Love it. It's amazing. What was your band called? So, we were called the Subcontinental Artist Guild, so it was called SCAG. Well, it was right on the time. So, we beat in numerous times, and then we changed it. We called ourselves Dusra, which is like a cricketing term for a type of ball throw. I didn't know that I don't play cricket, I'm a, uh, a Sri Lankan fail. Um, and what else did we call ourselves? We've, I think, we've been through so many names. Um, but I think Dusra is probably my favourite so far. Yeah. Awesome. And is there anything you want to tell us before you launch into your... Yeah, oh, well, I, I, I had a disclaimer as part of my story, so I'll do my disclaimer now, and I'll say that I'm, I feel more comfortable writing stories for other people to speak, you know what I mean? Like, you know, it's like you can craft things and shape things, and actors or readers bring life to it. Um, so the idea of speaking in my own voice and telling my story is absolutely daunting. But hey, new change, metamorphosis, about taking on a transformative you know, um, provocation, so here I am to tell my story, so go easy on me, guys. Awesome, sounds great, Addy. If you want to take Do it. Do it? Okay. Yeah. Oof. Right. Yeah. I was just saying to Jackie, um, last time I used my phone, midway my mum called me, so I just <laughs> double-checked that it's on um, flight mode. <laughs> um, and I also had to learn how to undo that lock thing, because it keeps locking itself, so... Um, <laughs> If I stop for technology, please, again, bear with me. All right, so I'm going to start my story with a song from a very popular song. Some of you may know it, so I'm going to start the phrase. It goes something like this. I'm not going to sing it, but it is, look for the bare necessities, the simple bare necessities. Forget about your worries and your strife. I mean, the bare necessities, old mother nature's recipes that brings the bare necessities to life. So now to give you guys a bit of context, um, I'm Sri Lankan. I was born in the UK, and in the late 80s, my family moved to Sri Lanka. Now, for those of you who don't know the history of Sri Lanka, our country has been in civil unrest for a very long time. And so my childhood is kind of coloured with sounds of bombs, shells, um, gunshots, and not the most idyllic or um, pleasurable childhood. But one of my fondest memories of that time in the late 80s um, was my uncle who bought me a VHS of The Jungle Book. Now, for those of you who don't know The Jungle Book, it's a story about a young brown boy um, called Mowgli, and he's found in the forest by a pack of wolves who raise him, and when it's time for him to become a man, they realize of this imminent danger that's waiting for him called Shere Khan, this intense, scary tiger. Um, so the animals um, set him off on an adventure where he meets all these trials and tribulations, and eventually, he finds his human race and he goes off into civilization. Now the reason why this film is really special to me is because 
my uncle told me that we were descendants of Malgui, and that we come from the line of Malgui. So I believed that our entire Sri Lankan race was Malgui's descendants, that he was our ancestor, he was our forefather. Um, so I lived with that pride. And so when I moved to New Zealand in 1990, our family decided that Sri Lankan war was not the ideal um, climate to be in, so we moved here. Um, with pride, I told everyone, guys, I'm related to Malkley. <laughs> and um, I remember the very first day of school, um, we went on a school field trip to Keith Spry Swimming Pool, and that's in Johnsonville, in a place called Paparangi. And I remember sitting on the bus, telling, I think it was Nigel Cocaine was the guy, I was like, hey mate, um, why do you use the word mate? Because I had a strong Sri Lankan accent. So we were doing something like, hello, uh, my name is Ahi, and guess what, I'm related to Mowgli. And they were like, who? I'm like, Mowgli from Jungle Book. And I realized that not many New Zealanders had actually seen um, the Jungle Book. And those who did, you know, called me a liar. And then the teacher had to prove to me that I wasn't related to Mowgli. My world was broken. I was crushed. But the story gets better. So we got to the swing book. And I popped down to the changing room. And everyone's naked. Now, I come from Sri Lanka, a very conservative, hardcore Hindu country where nakedness is not something that's encouraged. So I didn't know what to do, so I ran back up, and the teacher was like, no, no, you have to get changed. I'm like, no, no, I cannot get changed. She's like, no, no, you have to get changed. So I go to one of the cubicles, get changed, I come out. And all my friends, or soon-to-be friends, are all wearing these really tight shorts, except I've got these Speedos. Because in Sri Lanka, swimming togs, trunks are Speedos. So, Day one, and I already feel like I'm an outsider. But I think of Mowgli. Yeah, Mowgli was something very similar. That's all cool. I'm in my tribe. So I jump into the pool. Except I go all the way down, and I don't come back up. I've never swam before. So this man jumps in, pulls me out. And just like in Jungle Book, I think of Baloo the bear. I, I'm rescued in. Going well so far. We have a little swimming class. I go back to the changing room, and there's a true story. Someone has stolen my bag. I have no clothes to go back home. So, again, first day of school, and I'm terrified, so I go into the locker, not locker, what do you call those things, like a little toilet cubicle thing, I lock myself in there. And I must have been in there for about three hours, um, and this guy, I think he might have been a full attendant or something, I just can't quite remember, knocks on the door, and he's like, are you okay? And I'm like, no, I have um, no clothes to go home in. And he's like, that's okay, come out. And goes up and gets me a towel. I'm not sure if it's a lost property towel or a new towel. I don't really care. And he was almost like the Bagheera in my story. The panther, you know, that gets him in. I go up. And when I turn upstairs, I realize the school bus has left me behind. The teacher hadn't even kind of like factored me in. So I remember sitting, waiting. And Miss Galili was her name. She drove back, apologized profusely, wrapped me up. and. Um, we were driving back in the car, and I was looking out the window. I was looking at the trees and the forest. I was like, ooh, this is a jungle. RPOs have brought me into this new, unfamiliar, um, unaccustomed land that I just feel like a complete outsider. And she turns to me, she's like, mate, are you okay? And I look at her, and then something in me at that moment shifted. I don't know what it was, but something changed. And just like Mowgli, when he sees that beautiful woman in that river singing a song, I can't remember the song, or something about, I want to live in the water, or something like that. Anyway, um, I felt at ease. And I realized that was the first time in my entire life, growing up in a war-torn country, I felt safe. It was Galali's car. I felt like, from being a child, I'd become a man. 
I felt like something in me reassured me that everything was going to be fine. And I was ready to take on the new season. So that's my story. Thank you. I was 10. 10. How do you, how do you see your jungle now? I think my jungle is far more concrete, um, but it's still a jungle. I love navigating through stuff, getting lost, um, but I don't, I don't feel like the outsider. I think I've found all the other outsiders to come along with me on the journey. Yeah. That's really cool, man. Do you feel like, yeah, do you feel like the jungle book has influenced the stories you tell? I think so. Yeah. There's, there's something about, I don't know. I, I, when I look back, because I mean, I don't know if you guys have seen the new Disney remake of that, but there's something charming about that animated film that it's just the songs and, and that there's so much magic in there. And I, I, every situation that I run into, I always think, what would Mowgli do? Or, and if Mowgli had grown up, I've always been fascinated by you know, his backstory because the cartoon doesn't tell us how he actually ended up in that forest in that basket or once he went off with that woman into the civilization, what happened to his kids? I mean, of course, I thought it was me, but it's not. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, whatever happened in there. So that curiosity is what I think fuels my creativity as well. Cool, man. Thank yes. you very much. Cheers. Anything else you want to say? Nah, cool. Thanks Cheers. for having me. Thanks, Aheem. Aheem, come out. Um, what you, what's your occupation? A student. Yeah. Um, cool. Student. You, so you're studying at the moment. What are you studying? Um, I actually just finished my last exam for my degree. Um, Congratulations. Um, it's an arts degree in English Lit and Pacific Studies. So. Wow. Very cool. Very yeah. cool. And do you know what you're going to do? Is when you grow up? What they're going to do? <laughs> yeah. um, I I'm going to be amazing. Um, you will see me on many different stages, I can promise you that. Um, and I'm actually just really blessed and happy to be here. Cool, man. Yeah. It's great to have you. You're a poet, is that right? Yes, I'm a spoken word poet. Yeah. Awesome. How long have you been doing that? Um, five years, and I've recently just um, started a poetry collective called New Wave Poetry <laughs> Collective. Shout out to Liam. Um, yeah, and that's a lot of fun. I, it's been really intense. Um, it's, I kind of liken it to being in a long-term committed relationship with seven different people, <laughs> constantly having to like check up on each other and like make sure you're writing, but also like how you are personally. And that's like for me, that's actually a really difficult thing because I I really work by myself and I'm very like I know what I'm doing. Mm -hmm. Now I'm having to like share the space of and like I don't mean that in an arrogant way. It's more just like there's so many things to consider right and like when you produce work you want it to be like of a really good standard um but you also want to make sure that your relationships or the bar the space in between is is activated that um there's a sense of alofa or aroha every time you get up on the stage with your members and your collective um and that's something that i'm really big on the all the intangibles that outside of the product that you put on the stage. Um, it's kind of what a, that was a tangent, but that's kind of what um, I've just been thinking about in terms of collectivism and like how hard it is to try to start something like a community, um, but how uh, freaking rewarding it is at the same time when it all comes together. Yeah. Sure. Yeah. 
Do you guys perform your poetry at all? Yeah, so uh, we just formed <coughs> properly at the beginning of this year. Our first project was Mark Tanti for the Oakland Theatre Company. Um, we did a poetry slam last night, um, which was the first adult poetry slam. Uh, we placed third, but whatever. <laughs> no, we deserve to place first. You can record this. Uh, no, uh, no. We, we just had a lot of fun. Um, our, our whole, I guess our shtick is that we want to extend what poetry might look like in Auckland and also in the world. So really focusing on that, um, I guess, that gray area between poetry as an art form and other art forms like dance or um, theater. Hence why we picked up the Auckland Theater Company gig and stuff like that. So yeah, we're all just pretty young, pretty hungry, very broke. Um, so if you want to shout me for a feed afterwards, I'm totally down for that. Um, uh, yeah. Very but, cool. Yeah. I feel like um, poetry is kind of one of those things that people kind of consider as sort of a bit old school, eh? Do you reckon, like... Do you reckon? No, just like general public, I don't mean like... Uh, no, yeah, I totally yeah. I mean, I teach poetry at the moment, yeah. um, and it's interesting, I guess, because um, I teach <laughs> primary school kids, and I'm constantly... I mean, kids, they're great. Mm -hmm. They don't know any different. You ask them to just get into a writing exercise, and they'll do it. Um, but... Adults have this very interesting idea about what poetry is and what it might look like. And I had this massive conversation with this teacher at the school I'm teaching with, and she said, does poetry have to rhyme? And is poetry a good way of expressing her emotion? Because her daughter, her stepdaughter actually had her sister pass away from suicide, and, and so she's using poetry as this, um, I guess, coping mechanism. And I was just like, uh, yes, poetry is really good at expressing your emotion. It's no substitute for mental health services, but like, as long as you're there for her and present in that situation, like, I, I would encourage her absolutely to continue writing. Um, yeah, and I know for myself, as you'll see in my, po in my story slash poetry prose thing that I just wrote two hours ago, um, <laughs> that it's, yeah, poetry is for me the, the first language that my heart speaks in. Um, and, yeah. Guys, I think the future's gonna be okay. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you. So nice to meet you, Zach. Um, the stage is yours, I can't wait to hear what you're gonna say. Thank you. Thank you. <laughs> um, so, uh, I guess in the poetry community, you're taught not to um, ever apologize for what you're going to say. I would, however, like to apologize for what you're going to say. Um, so I had my original story prepared and I thought I'd saved it on my Google Drive, turned out to uni, um, two hours earlier to kind of rehearse, it wasn't there, so to the best of my ability I kind of had to re rewrite it, um, and it's uh, actually a lot more angsty than it should have been, but whatever. <clears throat> Dear 18 year old me, you're brave but you're only just becoming. At 21, I can, tell, I can tell you that I look at you and see a boy starving for his parents' affection and acceptance. I see a boy who understands a migrant dream and wears it like a noose around his neck. Yeah, our parents came here to help us get a better future, but you already know, as well as I do, that that future came with conditions, conditions that your dreams do not meet. Congratulations. You managed to get a scholarship by being reasonably good in subjects like accounting and economics, but that corporate pathway you are setting yourself up for will be disrupted and you will quickly see that it is poetry that makes you tick. 
So follow what makes you tick. You'll have enough wisdom at the start of university to not do a BCom, but not enough wisdom to outrightly tell mum and dad that you just want to be an artist. You should have told them you just wanted to be an artist, to be honest. <laughs> but you succumb to parental pressure and convince yourself you won't be wasting a $30,000 scholarship by solely doing an arts degree, and instead you convince yourself you want to do the sensibly cool compromise of an arts little conduit. Q2014. You'll be okay. Great, in fact. On the surface, you are the epitome of everything you've wanted to be. Balancing uni with being in a poetry theatre show and appearing in just about every poetry slam Auckland has to offer. But the more stages you appear on and the more mics you speak your existence into, the more you will crave that process and the more you will loathe law. Because law represents your five years of high school you used to slave away just to get here. Because law represents the five more years of university you will slave away to get this idealised promised land of your parents' love. There is no promised land, just failure. And let's be brutally honest for a bit here. Your identity in the family has been carved out of not, out of not failing your mum and dad. Whether academically, emotionally, spiritually, you have worked yourself up to be the chosen one, the golden child. Let me tell you, you are not the chosen one. And university will have a brilliant way of getting rid of your golden tan and giving you an academic tan. Open bracket, <laughs> alongside gaining 20 kilograms, but that is a similar story for another time. Close bracket. You're just like your siblings, which means you're human, you're worthy, and you're capable of love, not despite of failure, but because of failure. Because of your shortcomings and because you are not one of those rare people who do well in everything, although you try to be. But I've jumped to the happy ending slash to the moral of my story. The story actually continues with me heading into second semester and going into a deep crisis about life, hashtag millennials relate with me. <laughs> second semester is where things get excruciatingly hard and you continue to hide the fact that you're miserable at uni and the studious student identity that you have spent long hours cultivating, perfecting, training will shatter in pieces as you become numb to your own success. Truth is, you want to fail. You want to disappoint your parents. Like a kid glossing fingertips over a lighter flame for the very first time, you feel the warmth and the burn and the forthcoming danger of late assignments and assignments never handed in, and you flirt with it. A little too long, and it becomes you. Before you know it, you don't make it into law. And you're hit with this weird rush of happiness, disappointment, and regret all at once, because this is what you wanted, but this isn't what you wanted. No, no. No, you lie to yourself again. And all of a sudden, it's law that you didn't want. Just law. But a conjoint degree is what you want. So with no real interest in health sciences, you decide to roll, enroll in it anyway, with all the naivety of people who can't sing, who audition with, with, with on gimmicky shows like X Factor and American Idol. And in 2015, you realize two lectures in that health sciences really isn't your jam. And not only do you not end up attending class, but by the end of the academic year, you have, attended, uh, you have only attended three-ninths of your exams and spent days curled up at home marathoning anime in order to superficially feel better about yourself. If 2014 was the year the skin, your skin felt the warmth of passion, 2015 was the year your skin burnt out in an attempt to silence those passions. And this is your metamorphosis. Your becoming looks a lot more like your unbecoming, and sometimes, but especially for you, that is the same thing. So here are a few things I wish someone told you when you were 18. One, your parents will always love you, always believe this. Two, that does not mean they will get you, 
They will constantly, passively, aggressively pray to God and be masters of leaving side comments about your potential as if your potential can only be realized in one particular setting or way. But three, always love your parents. Be real with them. And although it will be rocky at the worst of times, they'll come to accept and support what you do. Which, much to their dismay, isn't healing people physically like a medical doctor would, but you cannot put a price on, and neither should you undermine the power of healing people of their emotional, psychological wounds with your words and your existence. Four, show up to your damn exams. Even if you have not studied, you may feel like the rest of the world has given up on you, and they probably have, for good reasons sometimes, but you, you can never give up on yourself. And five, accept failure. At the worst of times, it will knock you to your core, but at the best, and when used properly, it will give you a fair assessment of where you actually are versus where you want to be. Thank you. Um, yeah, so, I don't know, like, I have, like, I, I probably been this right after, only because, like, my inner English student is killing me. That story was just, like, a lot of generalization and a lot of superfluous language, and I was just like, okay, my goal tonight is just to charm you and make you believe in my language. But I'm just like, this is BS. I can see right through. Sorry. Um, massive well, you meta. got me. I say- <laughs> Thank you. <laughs> I will take that. Amazing. Yeah. yeah. I always like... When I was sort of 16, 17, I used to write a lot of poetry as a way of like, you know, getting out the shit, right? Mm. And then I'd bin it because, oh, I would never have read out that stuff, you know what I mean? Because <laughs> it was full angst. Like, right, it, well, this was full angst, so... Okay, mm. um, <laughs> yeah, but uh, it's such a good way, eh, of like, how often would you, if you were to write a poem, how often would you go over it and, come on in, um, how often would you go over it, like edit it and... You know, how long does it take you to write a poem? Um, uh, yeah, right? I think for, like, <laughs> um, some of them I've written in, like, the space of two hours, and then others are a, a, mar- a marathon. It's right. continuing to turn up to work on time and just knowing that this poem will be conceived, but the conception will be um, long and arduous and painful, but I, I guess the inner optimist in me just believes that the story needs to be told, if not for me, but for somebody else. Um, and that's what's important, because Albert Wentz says, if you don't speak your story into existence, somebody else will. Um, and especially for, I guess, for me, I, I, I strongly um, write from my Pacific identity. And with my Pacific Studies background, I just had this like whole vast knowledge of like instances where our stories or stories from my community have been either told, misrepresented, but with good intentions, but, but still misrepresented. So it's just this issue of misrepresentation that I'm always trying to kind of speak into. And, and I know that I don't look like every other brown person or speak like any other brown person. And that's something as well that I've kind of had to have a metamorphosis in um, and, and kind of be like, cool. No, I am me. Um, I'm still Samoan, I'm still Tongan, I'm also here in this space. And however which way you want to read me, that's cool, but I know my truth and I'll continue to tell you my truth as far as I know it is, you know. Um, and I've just been hella blessed with like really great poets who have championed me and mentored me uh, relentlessly, um, like Grace Taylor and Ramon and my brother Dietrich Sokai, who, um, yeah. Long story, but yeah, it's it's been good.
to even just get here and be such a young voice amongst these two beautiful um, voices. So yeah, I think I'll leave that there. Yeah, thank you very thank much. You. Thank you, Dan. Hey Donna. Hey, sweetie. This is Jackie Drury, everyone. Hi. 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 Oh my god. What do I write on my form? Yes, oh my god, how did you know I was gonna say that? Hmm. Depends on where I'm traveling. Ah. Which country I'm entering. Um, human, very popular. Showbiz. They're not happy about that. About that. <laughs> Um, Renaissance woman, a couple of times. Teacher just lets you breeze right through. Actor, trouble. So, you know, I, yeah. I choose, like I look at which line I'm going to get in and I go, oh yeah, I'm going to write feminist. Just like that. <laughs> <laughs> I, love that. I know that you, um, mm. you teach American dialect. Yes. It's a very broad... Among other things, yeah. yes, uh, I do. That's how I make money. What else are you up to at the moment, Jackie? Um, I just came off of five months of doing the pop-up globe. <laughs> Shakespeare! <clears throat> so I'm, I'm trying to bring my indoor voice back. <laughs> <laughs> trying to be cool with that. Yeah, a lot of Shakespeare. That was like doing the Olympics, actually, for actors. Yeah. How many shows did on. you do? 102, I think. Yeah, it's crazy. Like, That's how cool. who gets a run like that, right? Yeah. 102 shows. Um, it was cool. It was yeah. good. I was like one of the older members of the company, so I'm pretty beaten up. But, <laughs> but what I'm part here. did you play? Jackie? Played Beatrice in Much Ado About Nothing, oh, very nice. which is the lead. <laughs> and then I played the Duke of Venice in Othello. Boom! The only <laughs> chick playing a dude. And I was only on for five minutes. So I got to like literally like drink champagne and go Facebook and do whatever I wanted. And then I just came back and did a jig at the end and I was done. <laughs> so it was really a sweet gig. Sweet gig. Sweet, sweet gig. gig. Awesome. Yeah. What's next, Jackie? Have you got anything coming up? <clears throat> Might be more globing, possibly. Mm. Um, more dialect coaching. For sure, that's happening. I'm teaching American accent course right now for all the people that want to go to Hollywood and make it. Yes. You have to talk like this. Um, so I'm doing that and and kind of recovering and being a mom to my girl who missed me a lot for five months while yeah. I was working. Yeah. Every night. Huh? Yeah. 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 And you're married. I'm married. Married. Yeah. To married to a Kiwi. Yeah. That's why I'm here. Mm -hmm. <laughs> Yes. Still married? Yes, you do. Yeah, you guys go overseas and you bring people home. You like populate the country. Yeah. It works that way. Yeah, so I'm here and, and I was sitting and Todd said, come do the water cooler. I was like, oh no, I can't. I, oh, why can't I? Come do the water cooler. Here, awesome. here I am. Yeah, and you're about, you told us before you were about to go for your citizenship. Right? I, yeah. I think if I pass the police check, <laughs> I will be a New Zealand citizen. Because, um, you know, fuck Donald Trump, right? Wow, um, that's a hot mess. But I'm keeping that passport, and I'm voting over there, because I need to do that. But, but I've been here for 14 years, and 
I'm a permanent resident, so I vote in your elections. But um, I, I thought it was symbolic and, and time, and this Aotearoa has been good to me, so yeah. Oh, you're in. We've been lucky to have you. Hmm, thank you. Um, anything you want to say before you get going? No, I'm just excited to, like, I knew Ahi, and it's really lovely to meet Zach, and there are poets in the house, and I was trying to make this thing. I kept texting Todd going, fuck, it's 14 minutes, I can't get it down anymore, it's a big story. And he goes, no, no, you got 10. <laughs> um, so I actually, I, I eliminated a poem that I wrote that I thought was a really good tag ending to the story. I just cut it out mercilessly, but then I brought it. Yes. <laughs> so, yes. so I just thought, if you guys, if I made it and that little flashlight was still going and you all were still sitting here, I just might read the poem. <laughs> we'll see. It'll be about 14 minutes. <laughs> I'm only allowed 10. <laughs> Shall I? <laughs> shall I get to it? You shall. Okay. Thank you. All right. I'm going to keep this thing here. All right. Um, microphones. Weird. Yeah. Twist. Nothing. Yeah. Twist. Oh, twist. Twist. Draw. Oh, God damn it. <laughs> this is not my... I'm just a performer, okay? <laughs> Right? Yeah. See, like, there, we there we go. Sweet. Let's try it there. Thanks, Ahi. Okay. It looks like a lot of pages, but really it's just because I'm blind and I have to do it in French. So here we go. My metamorphosis. Um, this is like a series of existential crises that were like a, like a, like a, just a succession of mind fucking mm -hmm. that happened across kind of like in two year intervals across about seven years. So gather around the fire folks, I'm gonna tell you a story. Chapter one, I had a baby. <laughs> now people are gonna tell you that your life will change in unimaginable ways when you have a child. Who's given birth out here? Mm-hmm, mm-hmm, right? They, you have no idea until it happens. So people, people tell you that, and you're like, oh, yeah, 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 yeah. And then the jokes start. People are like, oh, my God, you'll never sleep. And, and oh, no one gets you an instruction manual. And oh, there's just poos and wheeze everywhere. And you have no idea. You laugh through that. And no one actually tells you that you are going to profoundly lose your entire identity when this child is born when you grow a human inside you. Now I was 46 when this happened, that's fucking crazy. I mean, nobody does that naturally. <laughs> so I was a bit of a freak and my doctor treated me like one, my midwife did too. They told me all the problems I was gonna have, there was gonna be preeclampsia, there was gonna be diabetes, there was gonna be the possibility this baby was just gonna die in my womb if I dared to try and give birth naturally. I was like, no, fuck you guys. Not this geriatric pregnancy. I'm bringing it, right? So I ate all the right things. I, 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 did, I slept as much as I possibly could. And then, boom, sleep stopped. Stopped early on. I just stopped sleeping. But I would stay up every night, and I would eat a peanut butter and jelly sandwich and one liter of milk every fucking night. That's like an American thing, that peanut butter and jelly sandwich. <laughs> You're not supposed to eat that shit when you're pregnant. I ate every night. 
a liter of milk. I don't even drink milk. I was possessed. So I weathered a seven-hour labor like a motherfucking Zen master, you know? No pain relief. I got this shit. And those nurses and midwives, they stood in the corner, and they started whispering, oh, you know what? She's really old. She's not going to be able to do this. She's going to need some assistance. I think there was a point where I literally just pulled my head up like a monster and went, fuck you! And then I squeezed this little alien right out of my body and into the world. <laughs> and immediately, I just felt so empty. And I panicked. Because I had gotten used to this pregnancy thing. There was something inside me, and now I was just a void. Like I didn't exist. I was absolutely lost. I didn't know how to meet the demands of this tiny human who still clearly needed to be inside me and it only vacated me because she was growing too big to get out the birth canal. So there she was, she was outside of me, but I, I couldn't recover my sense of self and I started to smolder. I'd been like hot and sticky for my entire pregnancy, like an Amazon jungle basin. But now that steam was actually turning into smoke. And for almost two years, I did nothing but feed and change and comfort and focus entirely on my child. I had no idea who I was. And I just kept wondering, oh my God, who died and made me a mother? Chapter two, my mother died. So my sister calls me from the United States and she goes, if you want to say goodbye to mom, you need to come over here now. So my sister, she's a doctor, she's smart, she's clinical, she's, she compartmentalizes things really well. <laughs> she's got this calm authority that would make you trust her no matter what she was doing. She never loses her shit and she is the exact opposite of me. <laughs> this, this thing about my mom, it, it wasn't unexpected. My mom was 92. Yeah, and she lived a long time, and it was, it was cool. It was her time, and so I packed up my daughter, Olivia. I put her in a pack, and we bought a ticket, and the two of us flew to Oregon to watch my mother die, and I arrived, and I found my mother lying in a hospice bed in my sister's house because my sister was going to keep her at home, let her die peacefully, and she was going in and out of kind of weird consciousness, she had a progressive dementia, so she was kind of dwindling. And she looked confused, and she was angry, and sometimes she was asleep, and mostly she just ground her teeth, because she had all her own teeth. She was 92. Impressive, right? But what I wasn't ready for was when I walked up to her bed, she just looked up at me, and she met my gaze. She looked me right in the eye, and she said, Oh, God, you're here. This is so hard. And she had these little tears that were just leaking out the side of her face. And, and she gritted her teeth and she just snapped at me, I need a map. So I looked at the hospice worker who was just there, you know, kind of helping set up my mom and everything. And I was like, and she goes, make her a map. Make sure she can see it. So I drew her a map. I like took this paper and I drew two lines and then I put light up here. And I wrote, go to the light with arrows. I don't know, and I just stuck it on the wall next to her bed. 
And I got my daughter up into my arms, and I climbed into my mother's bed, and I situated our bodies so that we were this kind of weird living sculpture. It was a still life in three generations. And I just waited for her to die. So for 10 days, I sat on the bed holding my baby, who was just nursing, and, and she was babbling. She was like, I'm a people. Look at mom. Look at all the people. And I sat in the bed, and I'm, I'm holding my mom, who's slipping away, and I'm holding my daughter, and my mom is there calling out the names of all these people she's seeing in the room, right? And here I am. I'm like this weird conduit of connectivity. I've got, like, my baby sucking on my tit and my mom dying in my hand, and I'm just trying to bridge life and death here. And if there was some big spiritual party going on, I didn't get the invitation because I didn't see anybody in that room. Okay? So I tried to plug into the sacred and the spiritual circle of life. Like, I'm, I'm a mother, I'm daughter, I'm, I'm woman, hear me roar. And I just, oh, fuck, I felt so insubstantial and powerless, and I panicked again. And I sat there day after day nursing my daughter, singing Amazing Grace to my mother, and smelling myself smolder until she died. And when we finally lifted her body into the mortuary wagon, my sister lost her shit. My doctor rock of a sister, my cool-headed custodian of my mother's demise, her knees buckled, her shoulders bowed, she hit the ground sobbing, and I couldn't catch her because I had a baby on my hip. And I watched my solid sister crumble as the car drove away, mom's body headed for a, a quick cremation, and I burst into flames. Chapter 3, I turned 50. Now, I don't know too many women who celebrate their 50th birthday while they still have a kid in candy, but I did. So I was making this a grand plan. I was grappling with the magnitude of parenting, because that doesn't stop, and dealing with my mother's death, because that doesn't stop. And 50 is a fucking big deal. So I was about to cross that threshold in the second half of life. That's the descent. So I became obsessed with aging and acceleration and ending, death became a sort of fuel for this fire that I was. I was in full conflagration the night I turned 50. I threw a party. I got 100 people there. There were kegs and cake and meat on a spit. Party! 50, fuck yeah. And I burned into that midlife crisis like a Southern California forest fire fueled by the dreaded Santa Ana winds. My fire consumed everything. Parties and people were poured on it. There was alcohol, because that's flammable. There were some solid LSD trips. Good year. Creative acts were just tackled maniacally. Young people, oh my god, young people were drawn to me like a campfire. They were like, it's Burning Man, yay! They came in. They didn't know. They didn't even know it was dangerous. They just sat around fascinated, staring at me. And then the smoke cleared and the air cooled and my heart dropped and I panicked again. And then I was ashes. So, chapter four. Now, this is a space to dissect what it is to be ashes. <clears throat> There's a medical term for it. 
clinical depression. Ashes feel like an end, it feels like death, and I am quietly and completely obsessed with death. My own. Depression, soulmate, suicide, and I, we got pretty tight. So this was my metamorphosis. It's, it's still happening. I'm not sure what comes after ashes. But I get out of bed every day and I rise up like a motherfucking phoenix because, you know, choose life, right? And I etched a phoenix into my flesh because I am both romantic and masochistic. <laughs> I find comfort in the thought that something might come out of the ashes that's not death. So I make choices every day that involve not harming or killing myself. I choose to play Frozen Monopoly with my daughter. <laughs> she doesn't seem to mind the smell or taste of ashes. I choose to come to the water cooler and tell a story that is way past my time limit. Yeah. I choose to just stand there when I'm at the edge of the ocean and feel like jumping in and sinking to the bottom of the sea because that is the same sea where I scattered my mother's ashes just a few years ago. I rise up, I make food, I go to work, I teach people things. I act when I can. I write when I can pull the thoughts together. I got a hashtag, hashtag make art or die. <laughs> I practice kundalini yoga. I practice cognitive behavior therapy strategies. I practice witchcraft. I'm not even fucking kidding about that. And there's something so apt about that, isn't there? Finding witchcraft in your croning years. <laughs> so I had a dream the other night that some old white dude, he looked a lot like the US Vice President Mike Pence. <laughs> he stood in front of me while I was like tied to a and he was saying, repent, witch, repent, or you will burn. And I looked him right in the eye, and I said, bring it, motherfucker. Been there, done that. That's how I roll, and that's how I rise. That was long, sorry. Oh, it's great. Thank you for coming. I'm glad you chose to come. Yeah, yeah, me too. Takes courage, eh? Mm. Or just something, to, I don't know. Yeah. Just to, even just to get to places sometimes. Sometimes, yeah. 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 And yeah, we, we're glad you're here. Yeah, me too. Keep rising, motherfucker. We're gonna do it. <laughs> gonna do it. I don't really have much else to say because I, I want—I mean, I want to ask about witchcraft. There's for sure, but you know, um, I feel like that's a story for another day. Yes. Okay. We've probably gone for long enough. Have we, Todd? You're the boss. Yeah. Yeah. It's great. I mean, what an amazing group of people. We've <laughs> like, yeah, give it up Please um, let your friends know. Come along next time. Next month is 
Growing Pains. Growing Pains. Um, thanks, I, I didn't know that. Um, and it's all about the TV show. It's not. It's, um, <laughs> it's about Growing Pains. So make sure you come next month. It's every month, eh? Um, and it's a great thing. Um, and also there'll be a podcast out. I, yeah, and uh, they have regular podcasts of everything that's been on. Um, all 39 of them. So, so uh, thanks for coming. Tell your friends if you liked it. It's, um, it's a cool thing to do. So, yeah. Cool. Thanks for coming, guys. Man. No.